Welcome to SCOTUS Talk. I'm Amy Howe. Thanks for joining us. The Supreme Court's in a recess until May 13th, so we don't have any news to recap. That lets us go straight to the main event. Two weeks ago, the justices announced that they had granted three high-profile petitions for review involving whether federal employment discrimination laws protect LGBT employees. The cases will be argued in the fall, with a decision likely sometime in 2020. Joining me to unpack the cases and their possible significance are Tom Goldstein, publisher of SCOTUS Blog, and Kevin Russell. Kevin is a partner in Goldstein and Russell and has argued 12 cases at the Supreme Court. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Two cases involving the rights of gay and lesbian employees will be argued together. The first case was filed by Donald Zarda. Zarda worked for Altitude Express as a skydiving instructor until he was fired, he said because he was gay. The plaintiff in the second case, Gerald Bostock, worked as a child welfare services coordinator for Clayton County in Georgia. Bostock claimed that he too was fired because he was gay and that the county falsely accused him of mismanaging public funds as a pretext for dismissing him. So, Kevin, just to be clear, there are no federal laws that say explicitly you can't discriminate against someone in the workplace just because of their sexual orientation. That's right. There's some executive orders that protect federal employees, but no general federal law. So instead, Zarda and Bostock are relying on Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which bars discrimination in the workplace, quote, because of sex. Kevin, can you walk us through their argument? How, under their reasoning, does Title VII's bar on discrimination because of sex apply to gay and lesbian employees? Sure. So they make three basic arguments. The first is that uh, but for the employee's sex, they would have been treated differently. They would have been treated better. So that uh, if a male employee who is gay uh, had been a woman and was dating or married to a man, uh, they wouldn't have been fired. And so they say that's a form of discrimination because of sex. Uh, They also point to the Supreme Court's decision in a case called Price Waterhouse, which prohibited employers from making decisions based on stereotypes about what a man or woman ought to be. And they say that that kind of prohibited sex stereotyping is typical in cases of discrimination against gay people uh, because they are not conforming to the stereotypes about who they should be attracted to and who they should be in relationships with. And the third rationale is they point to cases that have said that it's illegal to discriminate against somebody because they are married to somebody of a different race. And they say, uh, this is like that. Uh, You are discriminating against them because of uh, the sex of the person uh, they're in a relationship with. Kevin, what's the employer's counter-argument here? Well, they say a number of things. At the most general level, they say, look, we are quite certain that in 1964, when Congress enacted this statute, they had no intention of protecting against uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. And so you have to read the text with that in mind. Uh, They say, with respect to the kind of comparison about how somebody would have been treated if they were a different sex, they say, look, that's not the right comparison. What you have to ask is whether the employer would have treated a gay man and a gay woman differently. And if the answer is no, they would have uh, terminated both. Uh, Then they're not discriminating on the basis of sex. They're discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation. And that's, they say, different. And Kevin, how did the lower courts decide these cases? Well, the Supreme Court took two cases. Uh, One case, Zarda, from the Second Circuit. And the Second Circuit said, uh, largely for the reasons uh, I just gave for the, of the plaintiff's argument uh, that sexual orientation discrimination violates Title VII. And the Eleventh Circuit in the other case uh, called Bostock uh, came out the other way. 
And will it matter, Kevin, that the skydiving company Altitude Express is no longer in business? It's unclear. Uh, the plaintiffs in that case told the Supreme Court that they shouldn't take the case. They had one below uh, because that created a complication that could prevent the Supreme Court from reaching the, the question. That may be why the Supreme Court then took another case as well in order to decide the same question. And so the third case, RG and GR, Harris Funeral Homes versus EEOC, is separate from the Altitude Express and Bostock cases, but will probably be argued on the same day. This case started as a lawsuit on behalf of Amy Stevens, who was an employee at the funeral home. When Stevens was hired as a funeral director in 2007, Stevens was known as Anthony Stevens, and all of Stevens' records identified Stevens as a man. But in 2013, Stevens wrote Thomas Rost, the owner of the funeral home, a letter to inform Rost that she identifies as a woman and would be coming to work dressed as a woman. Rost fired Stevens, acknowledging that she was being let go because, quote, Stevens was no longer going to represent himself as a man, unquote, and was not going to conform to the funeral home's dress code for male employees. Kevin, what were the arguments made in the lower courts in this case, and how did those courts rule? They were very similar to the ones that we were just discussing in the sexual orientation discrimination cases. So the plaintiffs argued uh, successfully in the Sixth Circuit that uh, discrimination on the basis of transgender status or transitioning is a form of uh, impermissible sex stereotyping. That is, you're discriminating against the employee because she's not presenting uh, the way that you would expect somebody who was born as a male uh, to, and that but for uh, their sex, they would have been treated differently. It would have been fine for somebody born a woman to dress as a woman, but because uh, this person was born as a man, uh, it, the employer found that intolerable. And the defendants made similar arguments as well. They said, again, uh, back, back in 1964, it would have been inconceivable that Congress thought it was prohibiting discrimination on the basis of transgender status, uh, and that the proper way to look at this is to be asking whether the person would have been treated, is being treated differently because of the sex and by that they were born with. That is, they interpret the words by, uh, on the basis of sex, to mean on the basis of the sex that you were born with. So, Tom, you had a thought about how the issue was framed by the Supreme Court. Right. Kevin, I'm interested in your thoughts about how the questions presented here were rewritten by the Supreme Court. So when you file a cert petition, of course, you identify the questions that you want the Supreme Court to decide. And the funeral home here had written the question about the text of Title VII to focus entirely on what Congress understood when it adopted the statute in 1964, and the justices got rid of that limitation. Do you view that as signaling what the court is thinking when they granted cert, they wrote their own question and eliminated that? So I think the court was recognizing that a big part of the case is going to be a dispute about how much we care about what Congress thought in 1964 as opposed to what it wrote. And so in rewriting the question, I don't know that they were expressing a view one way or the other. They were just uh, making clear that they were open to those arguments uh, from either side. And you think the same thing when the justices wrote their own question about this Price Waterhouse case that you mentioned before, the question presented in the cert petition written by the funeral home had really uh, focused, I think, on, for example, whether the employer was allowed to require the employee to follow a sex-specific dress code. 
So I think a similar thing was going on there, that the Supreme Court was wanting to uh, take a little bit of a thumb off the scale uh, that the petitioner had put on in, in drafting the question presented. It's very much part of their strategy to focus on uh, dress codes and things like that. Uh, but the Supreme Court, I think, decided they wanted to decide the more general question of uh, how transgender status is treated under Price Waterhouse. Terrific. So let's uh, sort of take a step back and maybe move on to some of the big picture issues uh, starting with the topic that consumed so much energy in the press room, which is the court considered these petitions at, I think, 11 consecutive conferences before finally deciding to grant review. What took so long, particularly when, with the Altitude Express and Bostock cases, you had two courts of appeals that had reached opposite conclusions on whether Title VII protects gay employees, which is sort of the paradigmatic case in which the Supreme Court normally grants review? Well, for the reasons that Kevin was discussing with me, I think that probably a lot of this had to do with the court's decision about exactly what it wanted to hear. So there were really two levels to that. One is there was the question of whether they were going to hear just the cases involving sexual orientation discrimination or also hear the funeral home case over gender identity discrimination by the transgender employee. And they had to work through that. Then they had to work through the wording of the questions. And there may have been real disagreement among the justices on those issues so that some may have only wanted to take up the sexual orientation cases. Others may have wanted to grant review on more. And it apparently kicked around for a long time. Now, you know, in 20 years or 50 years, whenever the court's papers come out from individual justices, we may learn that they were actually going to turn all the cases down and someone was writing a dissent. You know, sometimes that uh, effort persuades other members of the court to grant review. Uh, it's part and parcel of a phenomenon we've seen over the past couple of years where sometimes cases can kick around for months and months and months and then the justices will usually hear them but sometimes turn them down. It, it's a, it is a little confusing why it would take so very long. So what does the federal government have to say about these cases and, and this issue? So it's interesting. In the lower courts, in the transgender discrimination case, uh, the plaintiff was the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, which enforces Title VII against private employers. And the EEOC took the position successfully uh, that discrimination against uh, people on the basis of transgender status or transitioning uh, violates Title VII. Now, the employer then went to the Supreme Court, asked the Supreme Court to review that decision. And at that point, uh, the response was not filed by the EEOC, but by the Justice Department, by the Solicitor General, who generally represents all the units of the federal government before the Supreme Court. And what had happened in the interim is that Attorney General Sessions had issued a memorandum saying that the Department of Justice took the position that discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status uh, does not violate Title VII. And that's the position the Solicitor General took in the Supreme Court uh, when it responded to this petition, uh, very interestingly, uh, rejecting the position of its own client, at least as insofar as it saw the EEOC as its client. So the real puzzle to me going forward is going to be, what will the EEOC say? And more to the point, what will it be allowed to say? The EEOC didn't sign the response to the cert petition, meaning that so far as we know, the EEOC continues to adhere to its view that the protections of Title VII apply here. 
And in theory, the Solicitor General could allow the EEOC to litigate the question separately so that you could have the federal government on both sides of the question, one through the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission supporting the plaintiff and then the Justice Department with the Solicitor General supporting the defendant and uh, have both arguing in front of the justices theoretically. If the EEOC is not allowed to or doesn't ask to participate separately, then the case still goes forward because while the EEOC filed it, subsequently the ACLU representing the plaintiff intervened in the case as well. So the reason that this odd situation arises is because the EEOC is an independent agency and so it's less susceptible to a new administration coming in and and telling it to change its position. Right. It'll be at the time that the EEOC's composition changes that conceivably the EEOC with new commissioners might change its mind about what the statute means or actually what will happen sooner is that the Supreme Court will tell all of us. What are the broader implications of this case, one way or the other, if the Supreme Court holds that Title VII does protect LGBT employees, or if it, if it doesn't, are there other laws, state laws, for example, that would protect LGBT employees? So my understanding is there's about half of the states have statutes uh, that protect uh, people on the basis of sexual orientation or transgender status. Uh, so it's a big deal for the folks living in the half that don't. Uh, for those living in the half that do, uh, it's still an important issue for people who, for example, work for the federal government, uh, who are only going to be protected by federal law. So these are the first big LGBT cases since the departure of Justice Kennedy last year. What are we looking for after his departure? Well, Justice Kennedy really was a hero to the LGBT community. He was the driving force among the conservatives for broader recognition of the protections of the Constitution in particular. And uh, his departure will, you know, potentially be a very serious loss for that community with their needing a fifth ally uh, within the court. It'll be interesting to see if just the tenor of the court's attitude towards LGBT individuals has changed by the fact of Justice Kennedy being there, along with the four more liberal justices. Uh, So we don't really know a lot about uh, the more recent appointees, Justice Kavanaugh, Justice Gorsuch, on these sorts of questions, uh, but they are substantially more conservative than Justice Kennedy was, and you would think that they would be less inclined towards the plaintiff, probably. So one interesting thing that's going to come up in this case is a debate potentially among the conservatives about what textualism means, uh, and particularly whether textualists are asking the question, what did this phrase, because of sex, mean in 1964 to the people who wrote it, Or is it just a question of what does it mean as an objective matter? And if the answers to those two different questions point in opposite directions, how do you resolve that tension? Uh, One of the key cases being discussed by the parties here is uh, an opinion by Justice Scalia called On Call. And that was a case in which uh, somebody, a man who was working on an oil rig, was severely harassed uh, in a sexual way by other men on Uh, the rig. There was implications in the court's opinion that it was because he was effeminate uh, or, you know, because they thought he was gay. Um, And Justice Scalia wrote an opinion for the court saying that violated Title VII uh, because they were treating him that way because of his sex, and they wouldn't have treated him that way if he was a woman. Um, And he went out of his way in that opinion to say, look, we interpret the text of the statute to mean what it says, and we don't really... Uh, necessarily uh, 
pare back on the language to make it meet the expectations of the people who wrote it. The statute can mean something different than what they intended. And so uh, there, you could very well see daylight between somebody like Justice Gorsuch, who I perceive to be much more in line with Justice Scalia on this kind of textualism than somebody like Justice Kavanaugh, uh, who I, I perceive to be a bit more pragmatic and a bit more flexible on, on those kind of doctrinal matters, but we'll have to wait and see. Anything else we should be looking for at the oral argument? I mean, one of the very interesting questions actually will be the chief justice, who's the ideological center of the court, uh, very concerned about the public's perception of the institution and its institutional consistency. But the thing about the chief is that he's pretty coy at oral argument some of the time, and that is that he goes out of his way to ask questions of both sides in a, a lot of cases. And so I predict it will be very hard to tell where he's at in the case. And in fact, I think that it's going to be really hard to know who's going to win the case after oral argument. Oral argument, you know, is very, very unlikely to change anybody's mind in the case because the justices will have thought a lot about this ahead of time and there are no mysterious facts to unpack. Um, there'll be some suggestion that the court might not decide one of the cases for the reasons that you guys discussed earlier. But I think it's we're really, really likely not to have a good sense of what's going to happen until the day the opinion comes out. Okay, and that's likely to be almost a year from now. Okay, well, <laughs> we'll wait and see. Tom Goldstein, Kevin Russell, thanks for joining us. My pleasure. Thanks. That's another episode of SCOTUS Talk. Thanks for joining us. Thanks to Case Text, our sponsor, and thanks to our production team, Andrew Hamm, Edith Roberts, and John Levitan.